Hi, I'm Dan Morell, editor of the HBS Alumni Bulletin and host of Skydeck. Jules Kortenhorst is CEO of the Rocky Mountain Institute, a global think tank focused on sustainability and energy use. RMI was formed about 25 years ago by famed thinker and energy innovator Amory Lovins. It has become a sort of go-to source of analysis about the transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Two years ago, RMI joined forces with Richard Branson's Carbon War Room to, in Branson's words, go further faster. But Kortenhorst's professional path wasn't a direct line. I talked to him here about how both massive global political changes and a long walk in the South African bush transformed both him and his career. Jules, tell me a little bit about what Rocky Mountain Institute does and what your role is there. Rocky Mountain Institute is a 35-year-old institution. We have been working on the transition to a clean, prosperous, and secure low-carbon energy future for the last 35 years. I joined the organization three years ago um, with a specific mandate from the board to take the organization um, to the next level and move us from being thought leaders to also driving impact. We've gone through an interesting transition over the last three years. We've shifted the organization from a traditional NGO to still a non-for-profit, but a partnership. Uh, We've grown the partnership significantly. We now have 15 partners uh, uh, and we have uh, scaled the organization uh, both in terms of our global footprint, now 50% of our work is outside the United States, and in terms of our size, always a clear-eyed focus on accelerating the transition to a sustainable energy future. And I want to go back early into your career. You worked for Shell in Bulgaria right after the Berlin Wall fell, and it was right when Bulgaria was beginning its transition to democracy. Now, I've read that you and your wife, Cyril, were actually a part of that process that helped create Bulgaria's democracy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So, interestingly, when Cyril and I uh, left HBS in 1986, we pursued careers in industry. I joined Shell and Cyril joined Procter & Gamble, and we moved to Europe first. But then the normal expat routine in Shell took over and initially together with Procter & Gamble, we, uh, we moved to Hong Kong and from there um, I was asked to take a posting in Bulgaria. And so came along and found herself relatively quickly uh, leading the local office of the Bulgarian American Enterprise Fund, which was a private equity fund set up by the US government to help the Uh, transition to a market economy. Between the two of us, we were the largest foreign investors in the country. We were also the only foreign investors in the country. (laughs) Bulgaria was at the bottom of the list of countries that people were pursuing after the fall of the wall. Hungary, Poland, the Czech Republic were a lot sexier. But Bulgaria um, equally needed to make the transition from a communist planned economy to a market economy. And we felt incredibly privileged to be part of that process. We became good friends with the then prime minister, Philip Dimitrov. Um, We started the International Chamber of Commerce. We 
hosted many CEOs from around the world who came to look at Bulgaria as a potential destination for their investments. And, and we generally felt that we were part of shaping a liberal market economy in a way that very few people have a chance to do. You've mentioned that that experience in Bulgaria was revelatory for you, that afterwards you sort of felt this pull to do more than build successful companies. How did that impact your career sort of in the near term and in the long term? In the near term, after my uh, stint in Bulgaria, I um, spent uh, a number of years helping run uh, private equity-backed companies and growing businesses in, uh, in multiple sectors. But I also continue to have this desire to look for ways to have impact and to, to make a difference. And in building businesses, we do that. We create jobs, we create economic growth, we do have an impact. I continue to be interested in broader societal issues. And when a opportunity presented itself to take a sabbatical, I, I took some time off to think about what was next and decided that it was time for me to focus more on those more broad-based societal issues. And, and I concluded that climate change is in fact the single biggest challenge that we face as humanity. So over the course of the last nine years, I have pretty much worked exclusively on uh, the energy transition and addressing climate change, but, but continuously by looking for ways in which business can be a force for good and can be the scaling mechanism that it needs to be to create that low carbon society of the future. I wondered why you took that sabbatical and why coming out of that sabbatical that climate change became the thing that you wanted to focus on. So I had the privilege of doing a leadership safari in South Africa, a quiet walk with um, seven other CEOs in the bush of Africa. We hiked for about eight days in the bush, far removed from any civilization, no roads, no cabins, slept under the stars in between the animals. And one day, our guide told us we were going to hike to find some fresh drinking water. And he knew a watering hole about two hours hike from there so that we could replenish our water supply. As we got to the watering hole, looking forward to the cold, fresh water, we found a dry hole. And somehow the insight struck me how dependent we are as humans on this planet we live on. It was sort of a blinding moment where I realized that if we don't take care of this planet, the planet can't take care of us. I think there are two lessons from that. The first one is take time for reflection. As leaders, we are so busy and we have so many responsibilities it is hard and it's often not common to turn off our mobile phones, put our out of office message on and take time for reflection. And I was very privileged to do that and it's been very helpful um, in my life and in my career. And the second thing is when you do that 
and you listen to your inner voice, you listen to Mother Nature, you listen to those that are dear to you, think about what it is that you were really meant to bring to humanity, what you were meant to bring to your family, uh, what, what inspires you. And, and that's what I did. So 10 years ago, climate change becomes your driving passion. Your first stop is to run for Dutch parliament. Can you talk a little bit about that decision? So when I became convinced that climate change is this moral challenge of our generation, I figured that the best way to address this issue at scale is to change the rules of the game, to work on the policies and regulations that would enable the transition to a low carbon future. So maybe somewhat naively, I concluded that the place where you change the rules is in the political process. And I put up my hands um, to serve in parliament, partly because I felt that somebody with business experience and somebody with an understanding of the energy system could have that sort of influence in the formation of policy and regulation. Several of my business school friends alerted me to the fact that this was possibly a somewhat naive perception um, and that maybe people who spent the last 10 years of their life in running private equity-backed companies as CEO might not be the most ideally suited to serve in parliament. But I tried. <laughs> I made some progress. I got some things done. Uh, but it was a hell of a lot harder and the process was moving much more slowly than I wanted. So when the opportunity came along to influence policy from the side by creating a philanthropic uh, organization that has become the largest philanthropy on climate and energy in Europe, the European Climate Foundation, I was happy to trade in my role as a parliamentary representative for a foundation CEO. That is, again, another new transition for you in terms of your career, um, because that's the nonprofit world. That is another transition, and it is an interesting transition in that I was surprised to learn how much that world is different from the business world and how civil society does not always do a good job in learning from the business world. So working with NGOs and, and building a philanthropic foundation, it struck me how much we could benefit from importing in that community the, the management skills and the rational decision-making and the logic that I had been trained in in the business world for the first 18 years of my career. Having said that, th there are also some things that are dramatically different and, and quite exciting. Working in civil society, you are surrounded by people who are deeply passionate about the cause that they serve. And issues around motivation and focus, organizational focus, are relatively easier in that sort of a setting than in a traditional business. But it was a, it was a very interesting transition, and, and I learned a lot, and I very much enjoyed it. These are two fairly radical life changes. They are certainly fairly radical career changes. You and Cyril have four children, so there's family considerations too. How did you weigh all of this? Well, first and foremost, I have been incredibly lucky to uh, 
bump into Searle on the day before classes started in the Boathouse Bar between uh, the Business School campus and Harvard Square, and to have her um, side by side with me for the last 30 years. And so, yeah, we talked about it and, and we, we considered this. But often um, her counsel has been and, and her inspiration to me has been to follow your passion. And interestingly, if you do that, you also find yourself in a new and in a different dialogue with your children, right? Because what you choose to do can be an inspiration for your kids, certainly in some form or fashion always is a role model for your kids. And if I look at the choices that they make, uh, they have discovered that sort of passion for themselves as well. So um, yeah, you make some trade-offs. Um, we probably could have accumulated more wealth if we had stayed the course in the business world. But I think we love what we're doing. We're inspired by it. We see our children being inspired by it. And we don't regret the choices that we've made. I've seen you describe the goal of your work at RMI as nothing less than a sort of complete change of the global energy system. Now, that would seem to be a massive challenge. What are those things that keep you optimistic, those things you hold on to? So first of all, we have no choice. If we do not make this transition to essentially a zero carbon energy system over the next 35, 40 years, then the risks we face in terms of climate change are unacceptable. So the imperative is there. But the good news is that there's also a tremendous amount of momentum towards uh, a new energy system that even if you were to not believe in science and, and ignore the, uh, the warnings on, on climate change, there are plenty of reasons why a cleaner, more resilient, more competitive energy system in the future is something we should pursue. And you look at the speed at which the new technologies of our energy system are now becoming a reality. It is nothing short of the next industrial revolution. The cost of solar energy and wind energy is coming down relentlessly. The learning curves point to improvements of 20% um, every time that globally installed capacity doubles. And already in many parts of the United States and beyond, uh, wind energy and even solar energy is now more cost-effective than traditional fossil fuel-based electricity. So it is an incredibly exciting story. And by the way, it's not just exciting here in the United States. About a third of our work is in China, and the speed with which the Chinese government and Chinese industry is deploying these new technologies is mind-blowing is pacing well ahead of what we are seeing in the developed world and is very promising in, in showing a pathway to address uh, greenhouse gas emissions in emerging markets. So yes, there are many moments of optimism and of excitement as we see this new industrial revolution unfold. It seems to me that what you're describing in China, that sort of rapid adoption, wouldn't have been possible 10 years ago. Tell me a little bit about what's driving that change. Has it been a change in approach? Where's that coming from? 
I think there are three major shifts that really have um, had a huge impact on the debate. The first one is that the energy technologies of the future were, were largely early inspirations and dreams 20 years ago, and now are competitive in increasing parts of the world. And so what was an entrepreneur's dream or an inventor's dream 20 years ago is a hardcore business reality today. And that shift is only accelerating. And, and that has a huge impact um, on the second major trend. And that is that 20 years ago, this was not on the agenda of most businesses. Some companies had the foresight to understand this 20 years ago, but most CEOs were not focused on climate change as both a major challenge and a major opportunity for their business. Now, there are very, very, very few CEOs who do not acknowledge that climate change both represents a major challenge and a significant opportunity and, and who are not actively positioning their companies for the future, whether it is BlackRock, who came out with a report just a couple of weeks ago saying how their portfolio needs to be adjusted to be climate change resilient, or it is Shell who have committed themselves to a net zero, net zero emissions energy future by the middle of the century, um, or a, a, a multitude of consumer goods companies that have come to appreciate that being clean is part of the proposition that they provide to consumers. Uh, CEOs are on, on to this issue, and there's only very few left who are either denying or ignoring it. Which gets me to the third point, and that is that 10 years ago, there was significant debate about the magnitude of the challenge, the degree to which there was scientific uncertainty around this, um, and, and uh, the, the way in which we needed to address climate change as a major risk factor for businesses, for markets, and for society as a whole. That uncertainty has gone around the world, whether it is the government of China or business executives or households and families, people now know that this is proven science and that this is uh, no longer an issue we can ignore. And there's only one very, very small pocket left of uh, climate denierism. Uh, it's, it's such a small group, it's really quite, quite insignificant. It just happens to be uh, one of the parts of the political spectrum here in the United States. But it's only a matter of time before the facts and realities will catch up with that part of society and then everybody will be on the same page. Skydeck is produced by the External Relations Department at Harvard Business School. For more information or to find archived episodes, visit alumni.hbs.edu backslash podcast.